Peter concludes by saying this is the true Christian hope that Jesus and all the apostles have been announcing, including Paul, whose writings can be misunderstood if you rip them out of context, but all the apostles are on the same page. And so Peter ends his final address to the church. Now the tone of 2 Peter, it feels really intense, but his passion comes from a firm conviction that God loves this world and he's determined to rescue it through Jesus. And so this means that God's love must confront and deal with the sin and injustice that ruins his beloved world. And in God's own time, he will do so, opening up a new future for humanity and for the universe itself. And so 2 Peter has a wide, expansive vision of hope for the whole world, and it challenges us to examine our everyday lives. That's what the second letter of Peter is all about. When we look at 2 Peter, it gives us hope. And so when we look at that, we want to understand it in that context of hope. We want to understand it in that context of the hope that we've been given in Jesus Christ. That's where he starts the letter after all. And he bookends it by ending the letter there as well. Talking about God's grace at the beginning and God's grace at the end. In fact, you see at the very beginning of the letter of 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, To those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's through Jesus that we've had this equal standing and it came by faith in Christ. And so he, he starts out with the love of God and how it's been redeemed by Jesus. And so we need to understand it, uh, this whole letter in that context. In fact, in 1 Peter, he talks about external pressures they're facing these external pressures through persecution, and he shows how to handle those. Here he's talking about internal pressures within the church and how to handle those. And, it, and the focus is the gospel in both letters. The gospel is the answer that Christ died for our sins. He rose from the grave, and we can be saved by faith in him. And in fact, he goes on and says in this letter to kind of put it together, to put this letter together in, in its entirety, he talks about the promises of God at the very beginning. His divine power, chapter 1 and verse 3, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. We should, of all people, be people of hope because we have the promises of God that are precious to us and they're great. They are powerful. They're the promises of God that are found in his word. This is a book of promises. This is a book that's a love letter from God giving us his promises. And Peter's saying, now wait a minute, in our world you're going to find that promises don't mean very, very much, but with God promises mean everything. God is not man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should uh, repent. Has he not said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not make it good? And he goes on to say, he made it good. In, in verse 16 he says, this isn't made up stuff. In fact, God confirmed it to, to James and John and Peter as they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says he confirmed his glory. He confirmed that what he's saying is true. And if that's not enough, he confirmed it through his, the prophetic word 
uh, uh, here in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And the prophetic word confirmed itself. It was more fully by the transfiguration. It was already confirmed by the fact that it came true. When you read the word of God and you see the promises that are made in the Old Testament, every single one of them that has been fulfilled up to this point has happened exactly as God said it. Isaiah 53, Jesus didn't come as a conquering hero. He came as a suffering servant. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus was born in Bethlehem exactly like Micah said it would be. And so you begin to look at the word of God and you realize it's been confirmed. God's confirmed it both by it being fulfilled and by the fact that, that they saw it on the transfiguration. And then he says there's going to be false prophets, false teaching that's going to come along. All of chapter 2 is talking about these false prophets. And these false prophets, you can identify them by denying Jesus, even denying the master that, who bought them. That's Jesus. They're denying Jesus. They're denying the atonement. They deny that, that life is freedom and life is through his grace and morality. They say, no, it's through immorality, through sensuality, that freedom comes. Uh, they, are, they blaspheme the truth. They are those who are greedy and they are in it for the money. They are those who say judgment isn't coming, even though Peter says, no, wait a minute, judgment has come every single time when God said it. And he goes through this list starting in chapter 2 and verse 5. It happened with Noah and the ark, and the flood. It happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. It happened where God rescued Lot. And so it's coming. God fulfilled it every time as he said it would happen. It's still going to happen according to the word of God. There are those who don't believe in the supernatural. They blaspheme the glorious ones. Uh, they're like irrational animals. It says they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable sin in chapter uh, 2 and verse 14. He calls them blots, and blemishes, which is a key phrase. Hang on to that phrase because we're going to see it here. Same phrase in a minute, except negated. And so here they are promising freedom, but what they, he calls them waterless springs. They're like an oasis that you go up, you say, hey, there's a green oasis up ahead. There must be water. You go to there and it's no water. He says, that's their promises. They're empty promises. They won't happen. They won't come to pass. They'll be a uh, deal with addictions. Just like a dog and a, and a, and a sow that, that uh, return and just wallow in the mire. Then he goes on in chapter 3 and says, if you don't think God's words come about, look at creation. How do you explain that? How do you explain that there's something here, something that, that involves very intricate planning and detail in our world? How do you explain that outside of God, that there was an intellectual creator of all things he says just because he hasn't Jesus hasn't come back yet doesn't mean he's not coming God is outside of time and his time frame is different so be patient so he's leading up to this moment where he's helping them to see not the false teachers but the truth and that's where he ends here in, in the uh, in the final words he's wanting to stir them up by way of reminder he wants to remind them it's the word of God it's the promises of God that give us our hope that give us our faith that give us our our love that give us joy it's God's promises that are precious to us and so he ends the book looking at those promises once again and he says therefore 
beloved. Now it's interesting that in chapter 3 he says beloved four times. At the beginning in chapter 3 and verse 2 he says, I'm writing to you beloved. Why? To remind you. And then he says in verse 8, he says, I'm reminding you, or he said, don't overlook this one fact, beloved. So in other words, don't overlook the truth. And then here in this passage, our passage, he does it twice. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent. And so he says, be diligent, beloved. And then in verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care not to be carried away. Don't be carried away. Some of the last thing he's saying, don't be carried away. When you look at verse 14, remember those two words I told you to remember? What are they? Blot and blemish, right? You see them in verse 14. It says, therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, what, what are these? The promises, because that's what he's been talking about. The promise of his coming, he's not slow in. The promise of the new heavens and the new earth in verse 13. He says, you're waiting for these promises, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. You know, those are exact two, same two words. And here it says spot, and the other one it's blot. Well, you could use spot or blot, whichever one you want to use there, uh, because it's exact same word. The only difference in the Greek is that these, in verse 14, have a little letter A in front of the word. Anytime you put an A in front of a word in the Greek, it negates it. It would be like in, in English, we see that with theism, which refers to God, and atheism, which without God. And so here you have blot and blemish, and then you have a blot, a blemish. In other words, without blot or blemish. So I think that he's referring to these false teachers. He's saying, don't be like them. Don't fall into them. Don't fall in with them. Because we saw in verse 17, he says, take care that you're not carried away by the error of these folks. And I'm here to tell you, the church in America has been carried away by these folks. How do I know that? George Barna, hear that name? George Barna on Tuesday, I believe, of this week, October 6th, came out with another survey that he's done. He does these surveys all the time on religion and religious life in America. He uh, is, works with the Cultural Research Center, the CRC, not the CDC, the CRC for Arizona Christian University. Here's some of the things, his conclusions, and I'll give you a little bit of the details of why he came to these conclusions. And if you want, you can read uh, uh, more later about him. Um, and I'm sure he'll come out with a book with all this stuff in it. He usually does. Uh, he says, unlike the Protestant Reformation, and he titled the article that I read, Post-Christian Reformation. So post-Christian, after Christian Reformation. He says, unlike the Protestant Reformation, which would have been Martin Luther and during that time frame in the 1500s, he says, whose goal was to return to the foundational teachings of the Bible. This modern movement is one where Americans are redefining biblical beliefs according to secular values. So redefining the scriptures according to secular values is the idea. They asked 51 questions and had people respond to these 51 questions. And the answers, he said, showed a clear trend away from the teachings of the Bible and toward a secular worldview. Now, this is among Christians, those who call themselves Christian. In fact, his, uh, his, 
this uh, statement that he made. He said, the irony of the reshaping of this spiritual landscape in America is that it represents a post-Christian reformation driven by people seeking to retain a Christian identity. They still want to be seen as Christian, but they want to redefine everything that we believe. And and it's interesting. You can go to some other churches' websites, some other places, organizations' websites that call themselves Christian organizations, and they'll have these issues that are important to them, and they'll have biblical evidence and sometimes a whole biblical study devoted to that, and they take the very passages we would take, and then they reinterpret them to support their view. And so they want to be seen as Christian. They know that they don't value the scriptures, but they know that we do. And so they want to give you the scriptures because they know that this is something important to you in order to influence us. He says that evangelicals, for instance, have traditionally emphasized the importance of seeing the Bible as the infallible, inerrant word of God. That's what we see at Mansfield Bible Church. It says now, however, 52%, so over half, Do not believe in objective moral truth. You go, wait a minute. The scriptures are objective moral truth. And if you don't believe in objective moral truth, but you call yourself a Christian, it means that somehow you've changed what is stated here. and, And what does that mean? It means you believe in subjective moral truth. It depends on you. It's just up to you to make up your own mind, make up your own decision. Here's what he says, 75% believe that people are basically good instead of basically sinful. What do the scriptures teach? We're sinful. If I'm not sinful, why would I need a savior, right? So all of a sudden, I don't need a savior. He said 43% believe Jesus sinned during his time on earth. Nearly half. Wow. So... I don't need a savior and Jesus couldn't be a savior is what it's saying. And 58% believe that the Holy Spirit is merely a symbol rather than a person. There's no trinity. So we've given up in the evangelical circles the trinity. Jesus says divine. So both the spirit and the son. And us as good. And so we don't need anybody above ourselves. And that we define truth. And truth is subjective. Relativism is the idea. And the interesting thing about relativism, uh, in fact, I heard a professor of mine talking about this. He says, you know, the thing about relativism in terms of relative truth is is, is, it it fails. It's self-defeating. And here's how he defined it. He says, if you say all truth is relative, you have to ask the question, is that statement relative or absolute? Uh, If I say absolute then I have a one absolute system that all things are relative, so maybe there are other things that are uh, uh, absolute. Or if I say it's a relative statement, the minute I said it, it doesn't mean anything. And so relativism is self-defeating, it fails. And so when we have this idea that truth is somehow relative to you and me and that it's subjective, it means that we're leaving out an objective God, that he has an opinion about how the world works and how it should be seen. And so the question is, in fact, mainline churches, it's even tougher. Some of the mainline churches that you see, the um, uh, liberal Presbyterian churches or Methodist churches or whatever, that's what I think he's referring to. He says uh, these concepts, uh, there's three key concepts that um, uh, everything revolves around. One is individuals determine their own truth and morality. 
So they determine what is true. Uh, that's a relativistic or subjective truth. There's no objective transcendent purpose to life. So if there's no transcendent purpose above myself, I mean, think about that. I'm, I'm my highest good. I'm the, I, 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 the only purposes that are made are the ones that I come up with. Then what you see is a rise in a lot of different other things, a rise in anxiety, a rise in suicide. Because you, as long as life is going well, then I have a purpose in life. As long as I'm working a job, but then you get fired and no longer have a purpose in life. And all of a sudden you see people getting despairing and then nihilism begins to happen. There is no meaning to life. There is no purpose above ourselves. And so there's no meaning to suffering. The only thing that gives meaning to suffering is that God exists. And then he gives meaning to suffering because of his existence. That's why we can say all things work together for good. All the suffering works to good, for good to those who are called according, those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. He can take very difficult things and then bring something incredible out of them. And he gives eternal meaning to things that somehow don't make sense here, even here upon this earth. And so when we look at these ideas, we need to understand Peter was dealing with some of the same things and he was talking about how people are falling in with these false teachings. These false teachings need to, uh, to be dealt with. And the way that we deal with them is that we understand what Peter's saying here, God has confirmed his word. God's confirmed it. He's spoken to it. We see that in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4 where it's, where it's talking about the gospel and it said it was first spoken by the apostles and then it was confirmed by Christ and then it was confirmed by the Father by signs and wonders and a great variety of miraculous gifts uh, uh, distributed according to his will. And so here God confirmed the message that this is what's happening and you see that in the book of Acts where God confirmed his word. And so the solution to Peter, get back to the basics. Get back to grace. Get back to faith. Get back to the reason for our hope. And that is Jesus Christ. And so we need to understand that we should be some of the most hopeful people in the world. We should be some of the most joyful people. And here's the thing, and you can take this as one of the applications from this message. And that is when you are around someone else. Do you fall in with them? Or do you stand apart? Are you someone that, that they begin to be down in the mouth about our culture and, and they're complaining and griping and you just kind of enter into that complaining and griping because they are, either on social media or wherever? I remember whenever I was playing golf with three other guys, we were playing a tournament, one of these best ball tournaments, and it was for a charity, raising money. And so it was just a lot of fun usually. And, and these guys were great golfers, and I was the guy that was the duffer, right? I show up, and, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping to just contribute three shots for the whole round. I mean, that's 18 holes with, you know, four shots per hole. You do the math. And I'm hoping that I can contribute three shots. You know, I'm, I, I'm, that's my, my dream, Right. And, uh, and so I remember we, we all hit our tee shots, and I never really counted on my tee shot to be a mount for much because mine would either go way right into the rough or way left into the rough. And they would, they, we had one guy every single time right down the middle and long. Well, he hit a bad shot, and, and it kind of made the other guys nervous, and so they hit bad shots, and then, of course, I hit my normal shot off to the left, right? And uh, our best ball that we could play was under this huge tree. I mean, it was huge. 
It was like the limbs were like, you know, as big as this roof. I mean, they weren't that big, but they, and, and really low. And it was like, how are we going to even get to the hole? And I could see them. They're all kind of standing there like this. You know, you can see their shoulders slumped and they're holding their golf club and they're kind of looking down, you know, at the ball. Every one of them looking down at the ball. And I'm way over on the other side of the green and I'm, I mean, the fairway and I'm walking across and I see them all like this under the tree, you know. And I say, okay, get out of the way. This is my kind of shot, you know. <laughs> and I, they all looked at me, you know. I didn't enter into their dourness, into their pessimism. You know, I was thinking, I hit these kind of shots all the time because I'm always in the rough. I'm always under a tree. I'm not down the fairway. I mean, who wants to play a game like that, right? You know, how boring is that? I, I get to all these fun shots, these challenging ones, you know, where one foot's like this, you know, way up high and you're trying to hit and, you know, and under a tree or behind a little tree that's up like, it doesn't matter if the tree's this big, I'll be behind it on the fairway. And, uh, and so I get over there and I just, you know, I'm just, I'm just having fun. I'm just kind of relaxed and, and I just went and hit it. It lands up this far from the hole. And they're all looking at me. I'm just like, <laughs> and we had fun. And I realized at that moment, I didn't enter into what they, and I think how many times do we enter into whatever the mood is of the day? And what is the mood of our day? Discouragement, despair, lack of hope. People are just, they're, they're stressed. People have lost their jobs. People are struggling. I mean, think about all these things that they are. We should be the voice of hope, the voice of love, the voice of joy. And I think sometimes we end up coming in and going, well, I don't like this. And it seems like this is going on in our culture. And this has happened politically. And this is happening over here. And so we, we get into this angry mode in this judgmental mode instead of this mode of hope and joy and love, which are parts of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That should be the tenor of our lives. It should be grace that we're forgiving those who have hurt us. And then we're not holding it over. We're showing them grace. We're showing them mercy. That we walk into a room and we light up the room with our smile and with our joy that we, we light up a, a Facebook post and, and people go, wow, this person seems to have something because guess what? More people are drawn to that. Than any other thing that draws them to Jesus. I guarantee you my dourness, my entering into feeling pain and angry and everything else is not going to draw people to Jesus. But when I have joy and nobody else seems to have it, it stands out. That's why he says, Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these promises to come about, you're waiting for the new heavens and new earth, you're waiting for Jesus to show up. He says, Be diligent. It's, in fact, the exact same word that he says at the beginning make every effort to do what? So supplement your faith, and then he lists seven other virtues virtue, knowledge, self control, steadfastness, godliness, a God orientation to our life. That God is a part of everything that we do. Brotherly affection, that we're, we're showing love to people that, that are, are friends. Love that's sacrificial. He says, be diligent to be found by him. Not buying into the false teachers. Not spot and blemish that they have. 
without spot, without blemish, and at peace. Now, the question is, is what kind of peace is he talking about here? Is he talking about peace between relationships? Peace with God? Is that what he's talking about here? Or is he talking about internal peace, that we are at peace? I think maybe both. You see, when you think of the idea of being at peace, uh, I, I think of... Uh, uh, Romans 5.1, that talks about our peace with God, our peace in our relationship with the God of the universe. And he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justified meaning declared not guilty, we're declared not guilty, even though we are guilty, the declaration by God because of Jesus, because of faith, is we're not guilty. I mean, think about that one. You don't feel worthy? You're declared not guilty by God. You're in the court Heavenly court, you're guilty as all get out. And God instead declares you not guilty because he's looking at you through, as one person said, Christ-colored glasses. And he sees you through the blood of Christ. He sees you through, through Christ's sacrifice. And so therefore you're declared not guilty. We have peace with God. And there it is through our Lord Jesus Christ, not just through belief in generally in a, a God, but belief in Jesus. That's crucial. It says, through him we've also obtained access by faith, which we know then in Peter he's talking about, into this grace. And so the very grace that we're supposed to grow into, it happens when we were introduced to it when we came to faith in Jesus. It says, in which we stand, we stand strong on it, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So there's the idea of hope and the glory of God built in, which Peter talks about as well. And then he says, not only that, but we rejoice in sufferings. What? I don't want to do that. No, he says, we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So we have hope and endurance and character produced by sufferings, which the world cannot explain because they don't understand that process, because they've already ruled out God, they've already ruled out Christ, which means that suffering has no meaning, which means you don't build character and you don't build hope. That only comes because of God. And so we're to make every effort to stay away from false teaching and to be at peace in Christ. And he says in verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. You think, what? What does that mean? Patience of our Lord as salvation. Well, he just got through talking about patience in chapter uh, this chapter, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. But is patient, so there's the idea of patience, patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, there's salvation, but that all should repent. So my life, when I'm at peace, I can count the patience of the Lord, his waiting, his waiting as an opportunity for my faith and my hope and my joy to impact the world around me, because that's what he's waiting for, is for them to come to know him. He says, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, and you go, what? Well, wait a minute, is Peter and Paul, are they writing to the same folks? Well, remember who Peter's writing to. Peter's writing to, uh, uh, in fact, we find that in chapter 2, I mean chapter uh, 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. I was trying to push that button and speak at the same time, I couldn't do it. Um, so you look at 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. He says, to those who are exiles of the dispersion. And he begins to say where? We know in chapter 
uh, two, I mean, chapter three and verse one, he says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. So it's the same people. He says in Pontus, and so you see Pontus there on the map at the top. Galatia, you see it in the middle. Cappadocia, you see it to the bottom right. Asia, you see it to the left. And Bithynia, you see it up on the top. So where is he talking about? This area right here. So if you take that and kind of back off from it, it'll give you a chance to see what that looks like. It's this area right here. Today, that's Turkey. Then you have Greece. And then you have Italy and Sicily. So it gives you a kind of sense of orientation. What letters did Paul write to this area? Well, he wrote the letter to the Galatians, right? Called Galatia. It's interesting that Peter is saying, talking about Paul's letters. And especially the letter to the Galatians. Because you know what, what, what Paul says about Peter in the book of the Galatians? He cuts him down. He says some negative things about him. He says, this guy messed up. Peter messed up. He began to eat only uh, away from the, the Gentiles and, and began to kind of buy into legalism. And I had to correct him. And Peter is saying, he wrote to you. Remember the letters he wrote? Well, yeah, we remember that letter to Galatia. You can imagine him saying, well, not the letter to Galatia, but the other ones, right? And yet he says all his letters. In all his letters. Letter to Galatia. So this is... Peter's letter, both of them were written to Galatia. So we know that this is the third letter to the Galatians. We know that it's the third letter to the Colossians. Actually, the fourth letter because Philemon is also a book that's written to uh, a person that lived in Colossae. In Ephesus, uh, we know that the Ephesian book, but also First and Second Timothy because Peter was, I mean, uh, Timothy was in, in Ephesus when Paul wrote him. Now, he wrote letters to Philippi and Thessalonia and to Corinth and to Rome. And so those wouldn't be necessarily the letters, except when he says all his writings, he's including those as well. And so we know that uh, when you take that phrase and you look at it, you know we're also writing these letters to them. There are some that said, oh, well, he's referring to the letter to the Romans. It was cyclical and it, it, it was spread around. And I, I don't think so because of the little phrase, to them. He wrote to them. These were letters that he wrote to them. And so I think he's specifically referring to those. But he's also referring to Paul's writings as they do the other scriptures, he says. Notice that phrase in, um, in verse 15. And 16, it says, Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, verse 16, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them which are hard to understand. No kidding. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures of the NIV says is the rest of the scriptures. And it's like, oh, wow. So he's calling Paul's writings, scripture, even, the, even Galatians that wrote negative things about Peter, he's saying, this is, these are scriptures, which not only includes these, but also includes these. Paul considers Luke's writing scripture. It says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And that's in Deuteronomy. And the laborer deserves his wages. That's only found in Luke 10, 7. It's not found anywhere in the Old Testament. Paul's saying, Luke's writings are scripture as the scripture says. 
So there's internal evidence. So I can't look at the scriptures and say, oh, these are just the nice writings of people because it claims for itself that these writings are scripture. Peter's writings, Paul's writings, Luke's gospel at least, the internal evidence that he's, he's writing these things. And he says, the untaught or the ignorant and unstable, they twist these things. And what we find is, is that in our world, we twist these things based on all of these things right here. We will say that truth is fluid. That's what you see from that, uh, from that study that Barnes says. Truth is fluid. I hold that truth is not fluid because the idea of relativism fails. It's self-defeating. I think that truth is not fluid. Truth depends on God. It's objective rather than subjective. It's objectively from God. It's not subjectively depending on what my truth is versus your truth. Because otherwise, we look at the scriptures and we become uh, audience-oriented in our interpretation rather than author-oriented. God spoke it. He said it. So truth is objective. It's based on him, and that's what makes it so. Truth has an historical context. If I were to say... I love you, it would mean something different in a wedding ceremony if I were the guy standing on the stage marrying the gal than if I were saying it to my son. One is two people who are not blood related becoming a family and starting their family at that moment, right? But if I'm talking to my son, it's not a covenant like it is in marriage. And it's something different. This is a person that, that I've helped give birth to. And so this, this I love you is different. The context is incredibly crucial. And so it is with truth that our, our, the context, not only uh, uh, the historical context that, that it was written in, but the theological context in which it was birthed as well. And so we need to understand truth in its context. We need to understand spiritual truths involve the supernatural that we're in a, in a world where it wants to deconstruct the scriptures. In other words, take away all of the historical context so that you can find the truths. And then you want to take away the original theological context and impose them with a new, new context. And then we want to take out the supernatural because we're, after all, a scientific world now. And so we want to take away the supernatural. And so we end up with a religion that's based on ritual and us being doing good things. And that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the life that, that Peter's talking about here. The life that he's talking about is that I'm sinful. I'm in need of a Savior. And so I put my faith in God who is supernatural. And he supernaturally works in this world. We invite him. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We invite him to become a part of our world. And to change our world. And to become engaged in it. Because there are some things that only God can do. Only God can change. And so we... Get on board with him. We set our heart with his heart. Have your delight in God and he will give you the desires of your heart. We're, we have that delight in him. And when we do, we begin to see our world change around us. It's a supernatural thing that happens. And if the world sees only things that you can pull off, they want to know the tricks and secrets, right? 
Truth is offensive. It means that some people aren't going to like it. It means I'm not going to like it. There's times where I read the word and go, God, I don't like this. I don't want to do this. Right? In fact, I was in a group, a Bible study one time where we looked at this particular truth and the person, we said, well, what is it saying? And they clearly said, yeah, this is what it's saying. And, I, and then they, and they just volunteered, but I'm not going to do it. Oh, really? We have that option? I mean, think about it. If Jesus is my Lord and I've called him Lord and I call him Lord and I say, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. It doesn't matter if I like it or not. I do it because he said it. And there are times that I've said with tears, God, I'll do whatever you ask. No matter how much it hurts, no matter what it costs, I'll do anything you ask me to do. I want to be sure you're asking me to do it, but if I'm sure, I'm doing it. I have no other option. I have no other say because you are my Lord. And that's a hard thing to say sometimes. Truth is unbiased. And we're very biased. Even when we look at the truth, we look at it through, it's like we've got these series of lenses that we've got to continually take off if we want to see clearly because now we see dimly as in a mirror, but then face to face. It's like we, we need to take off those glasses, a series of them. We think, when I read the scriptures, we think very individualistically, oh, this is what God's saying to me, rather than this what is God saying to us. And, and the scriptures were written in a context of us. In a, in, in a context of community, in a context that doesn't have people leaving home when they get 18 or become 18, they, they are somebody who are, are, um, uh, build a room on their father's house and then they get married and they bring them there and they're around the same courtyard. That's the context. It's a context that, that, is, that is not American, it's Jewish. It's a context that, that doesn't believe in necessarily democracy, but in following God as the authority, the sole authority in our lives. I mean, you, you think about how many different lenses that we look through Scripture at, and they influence us. They lead us down the wrong path. There are some things that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You know, I was thinking about truth and that's why I brought this ball. I had to move it off of where I put it because I was sitting there, I couldn't take my eyes off of this ball because it's this bright, you know, yellow color. And here I was thinking about how we think that we control truth. We say, well, my God is like, well, I don't get an option to, you know, create God right? It's not me declaring who God is. It's him declaring who he is. And then I either accept it or reject it, but he is God. And I don't get a choice in the matter. And we think that my truth and your truth, and we talk about that in our culture. And I thought about that and I thought, okay, my truth is when I let go of this ball, it's going to go up. <laughs> okay. You ready for it? I'm going to let go of it. And I'm believing it's going to go up. I'm not in a vacuum. I don't have a string tied to the ball. And it's going to go up. Well, it did go up. And I can defend it, right? I can say, oh, it went up. But it didn't go up when I let go of it. It went down. 
I can say I'm not going to die. And I'm going to die one day, right? I don't get to have an opinion about truth. Truth is truth. It's objective. It's outside of me. It doesn't matter what I want truth to be. And I've got to understand that it's going to be sometimes offensive to me. And that I have my biases. And when I read the scripture, I need to not read them into it. Or it's my own destruction and I'm ignorant and unstable and I'm twisting scripture. He says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. I had a quote here by uh, Chuck Swindoll on this idea of grace. And this idea of grace is in his book, Grace Awakening. He says, a theology that rests its salvation on one ounce of human performance is not good news. It is bad information. A salvation that includes human achievement, hard work, personal effort, even religious deeds distorts the good news because man gets the glory, not God. Grace says that you have nothing to give, nothing to earn, nothing to pay. You couldn't if you tried. Salvation is a free gift. You simply lay hold of what Christ has provided, period. The true gospel of grace, however, will set you free. Free forever. We sang about in that very first song, remember what we sang about? This idea that, that, that why, why am I getting this grace? Why am I getting this mercy? Can it be? That God would take me who, who with my own doubts and my own fears and my own feeling of worthlessness can take that person who put their faith in Jesus and elevate them to a place where they can partake of the divine nature. Oh, that is an incredible message. Something that I could never achieve on my own without supernatural enablement and work. And he gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us his power. He gives us his word. He gives us all the promises of God, everything we need for life and godliness. Wow, we should be a people with incredible hope. God is someone who keeps his word and he does what he says he's going to do. And he's done it up to this point. He will do it going forward. He will come again. There will be a judgment that's coming. And we will be declared at that moment not guilty. We'll be affirmed what's declared now, not guilty, will be affirmed then and we'll enter into glory. And it's not because we're great people, it's because we have a great God. It's not because we do stuff, it's because it's already done, it's already finished on the cross. And I think so many times we settled for a cheap version, a knockoff of Christianity because it's cheaper, it's less invasive in our lives. We don't have to call him Lord to do it. We can just kind of go around being a good person and think that we're typically good. It's like the kid who gets the present and opens it up and sets the present aside and plays with the box. And the parents say, no, you're, this is what we wanted for you. This is what we, oh, I'm enjoying a box. And so the parents figure out, here's a better gift and they get an even better gift and, and the kid sets it aside and plays with a box. And they try to hide the box and they still look for the box. They want to, and it's like, are we Christians who are going to play with the box? Or are we going to play with the gift of God that he has given us? Not this shell of Christianity, but the real thing. 
because it's the real thing that's going to transform our world. And I think so many times uh, our world has been inoculated against the real disease of Christianity, if I can use those terms. And they have this vaccine that keeps them away from Christ because they seek a Christianity that's all humanly done and not one that's divine and not one that's supernaturally inspired and not one that's driven by the God of this universe. This happened because of Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. I guarantee you, when a person lives their life that way, the world sits up and takes notice. When the world sees a hope among believers and a joy that just blows the doors away and the love and forgiveness, even though they treat us wrongly, you could, they, that's something that catches people's attention. I still will never forget in the, in the book, The Persecutor, how this, this, uh, this, this one authority was going after these Christians that were having secret meetings and he went to this third meeting in a row and it was the same young woman that was there at this meeting and he had beat her up twice before and he, he couldn't understand how she could show up again and it broke him and he came to Christ. He was a persecutor of Christ and of his people and he came to Jesus because of this woman and her joy and her persistence and her faithfulness to the Lord. I guarantee you, our world will be drawn to Jesus if we're living that way. And I guarantee you what? Our life will be different as well. Let's don't buy into a cheap knockoff. Let's live for Christ. And see what he does in us in terms of helping us to be partakers of the divine nature. And what he does in our world, the patience that, that he has because he desires everyone to come to know him. Father, we come to you this morning and we just confess to you that we so many times, too many times, buy into a cheap knockoff of grace, a cheap knockoff of, of true Christianity and our world is unimpressed and we wonder why. Lord, we are less than impressed. We are sometimes wondering, are you there? And we're not even trusting in you. We're just depending on our own works and our own effort and, and, and the things that we can make happen. Lord, we confess these things to you and pray, Father, that we would take the instruction of Peter and be diligent to have effort and regard to our faith and that effort would be to live by grace and to grow in grace and grow in faith. That we wouldn't just rely on what we can pull off, but we would rely on you. The God of the universe who loves us dearly and whom we love. Whom Jesus died for us so that we could have an eternal life with him. Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here that hasn't taken that step, to put their faith in Jesus, I pray that they would do that now. Because it's faith in Jesus and his finished work that he is a savior, a sinless savior who died in our place to provide salvation, to provide a not guilty verdict. In that day when we stand before you, we have nothing to fear because Jesus is there with us. He has died for us. And he declares that we are not under condemnation. We're set free. Lord, help us to grow in that grace. 
Help us not to be those who play with the box, but who live for you. Change us, Lord. Change our world. Use us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.